The Guardian. It's Monday, June the 28th. I'm Mike Duran on today's Guardian Daily. Dissection, accusation and recrimination. Capello blames burnout for the poor performance of his team of millionaires. All the players, English players, are having really tired at this competition. The Tory-led coalition says there are too many skilled workers coming into the UK from outside the EU, so it's capped the number who'll be entitled to. The problem for the government has is that it's promised to get immigration down, net immigration, that's those who leave the country as well as those coming into the country, down from hundreds of thousands to uh, tens of thousands. Following this week's referendum, what next in Kyrgyzstan? Peace and stability or further ethnic clashes? The danger, of course, is that Kyrgyzstan is kind of sliding towards something far worse, towards either disintegration or civil war. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. First today to Rustenburg in South Africa. And following his chat with Club England chairman Sir David Richards, Fabio Capello has faced the British press. Do you have an England future? I spoke uh, this morning with uh, Sir uh, David Richards. He told me that he, he uh, he need two weeks' time to decide. I said uh, I can be, for the next season, the manager of England. But we have to decide. But you want to stay on as England manager? Absolutely. Do you think, if you do, that you'll have to make a lot of changes? Yes. We spoke uh, also about this. We spoke uh, with uh, Sir Dave about the younger players that we can play for the next uh, qualifications. Why do you think you couldn't get the best out of Wayne Rooney at this World Cup, Fabio? I think uh, not uh, Wayne Rooney, but all the players, English players, are having really tired at this competition. I spoke with the coaches and uh, all the players, all the coaches told me that the situation, physical situation, and the the mental situation of the players was not like the players that we know. Because they played uh, not so fast, not so quick, uh, like uh, I know when we played at the other games. Fabio, do we need to have a winter break? Yes. Um, I think the Germany, always arrived at the, at the second part of the season very well when you played the, the Champions League, the, all the European Cups. But the reason I think uh, it's really important uh, to recover the force in this period, but it's not my job uh, to decide uh, about uh, the calendar. The press conference was delayed by a power cut, a metaphor maybe for England's performance in South Africa. The manager who wants to stay on in his job has been told he'll have to wait two weeks to know whether he'll retain the £6 million a year post. And as we've just heard, he blames tiredness for his team's dismal display, saying the players were mentally and physically exhausted. He also says the motivation went out of the game after Lampard's disallowed goal. Here to dissect his dissection of the England campaign is Wolves manager Mick McCarthy. I had every faith in Fabio Capello before I left and I think he's a good manager. And, and the fact that the World Cup has not been a huge success for him doesn't, in my mind, make him a bad manager. And he works with the players every day, 
he knows them, not me. Uh, so for me to be trying to judge them would be completely wrong. Uh, as I said before he left, I said all good things about the manager, and I'm not going to change them now because I've I've been to a World Cup and I know how things can things can develop while you're out there, good and bad. He also said in his press conference that um, that obviously people aren't happy, uh, but he said the motivation changed when Lampard's goal was disallowed. Is that reasonable? Because as just you know, the average England fan, you would wouldn't you expect the motivation to be stronger when the challenge is larger? Of course, of course, you expect the motivation to be to be greater, uh, and I don't. I said I don't work. I didn't see them not being motivated at all. I just I saw a poor performance, which does, which can and does happen. All the reasons why are not for me to comment on or to to even guess at because I've I've not been there. All I do know is that as as a group, it's not it's not worked particularly well, and they've they've not really. As a, as a whole, being as good as the sum of their individual parts because they've got a good manager and they've got good players. To quote Capello in, from the press conference, he said he understands a lot after this tournament. I mean, he's paid to understand a lot before the tournament, isn't he? It's funny that, all you journalist guys, you'll, you'll ring up and say, uh, what have you learnt? What have you learnt by being in this tournament? What have you learnt by being in the league this year? What have you learnt by playing in the FA Cup final? Or whatever it might be. So if that being the case, you don't think you're continuously learning, continuously finding out about yourself and about people, despite his huge knowledge and uh, and the respect that everybody had for him before the tournament, he will have learned a lot, there's no question. He'll learn a lot, he'll learn a lot about himself, a lot about people who are playing for him, players who are playing for him, staff, he'll learn everything. Everybody who's been connected with it, he'll learn something about them, about how... You know how he's perceived. He'll have learned all about that as well, uh, and and it's bizarre that that's changed from two months on when he was seen as the best since sliced bread, and now it's changed. Me personally, still think he's a good manager because his uh, his his record, good record, is as long as my arm. Can I finish on a light question for you? Who do you want to win the World Cup now that England are out? That's suggesting that I wanted England to win the World Cup when they were in. <laughs> I did actually. I did. Uh, if Ireland weren't there, it would have reflected. It just it makes for a great buzz in the country, wherever you might be. When when we were in it in Ireland and we were doing well, it was fabulous. Great feel about the place, and it creates that. You see that with the with Ghana going through because it's in Africa and an African team's gone through. Uh, I'd like to see the best team win it. Not, not, and certainly not through a disallowed goal or offside goal or handball. Or I'd like to see it won honestly with the right decisions made and uh, integrity and honesty and whatever it is restored back to it because it's just annoyed me the last two games in the World Cup. Mexico versus Argentina and England-Germany, two between that and the French decision, getting to the World Cup over Ireland has just annoyed me hugely. Wolves manager Mick McCarthy, another disappointed England fan. And here are some not-so-disappointed German fans, followed by the response from England's travelling supporters. It was a great match for Germany. 
We have a good player and I hope he comes to the final. England had a good chance. Up uh, the ball is in the goal, I don't know it. I don't see it. It was too little from, from England. <laughs> Nobody predicted four goals. We predicted maybe a 1-0 or a penalty shooting or something like that. But 4-1, uh, never, because the English team is a very good team and they have also very excellent players and we are just happy now. <laughs> Fuming, son. Performance, yeah? Rubbish. Gerard, 20 minutes to go, walks back to the half halfway line. Did you see him? He walked back to the halfway line. He's our captain. Give it some of that. You would not believe the stories me and this guy's got. We get f robbed in our hotel last night. We, we blew a tyre on the way down. We've had no sleep. If they come out and say tired after a, after a long season, I was tired at half past four when I woke up this morning, yeah? In the last two two managers we've had, Sven-Goran Eriksson and Fabio Capello, they're supposed to be two of the most recognised managers in the world. If they can't get that team set of players going, then who can? 4-1, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing, but they deserved it at the end of the day. Um, I'll take the bitter pill, you know what I mean? I think they deserved it. Whatever reason, they didn't seem up for it, they didn't seem snap of the tackles. They let the Germans have possession, let go gain confidence. We didn't have the confidence. There's something going on in the team. Pretty sure it'll come out in the next few days in the media. But there's just something not quite right because I've seen Premiership teams at the bottom of the league and play better than that, and it's quite six million pound a year. Jesus Christ, that's a lot of money we're paying, and we need to see better than that. I'm afraid. Reaction from German and England fans proving everyone's an expert. Here's our sports correspondent now, Owen Gibson, with his own post mortem. So it's the, it's the day after the night before in Bloemfontein and it's a real sense in which the team was comprehensively beaten, outplayed and outthought on the pitch by a much younger, faster, fitter team. Really a plague on all their houses has to be the mood. Um, a lot of people are angry with Capello. He was unable and unflexible, unable to change his tactics when it, when it was required. Comprehensively outthought by Joe Chim Lowe on the German side. But you also have to look to the players. Um, they're seasoned professionals. It was pretty much their last chance to achieve at a World Cup for for lots of them, and they, you know, singularly failed to, to rise to the occasion. But then I think you have to go deeper than that, and you have to look for the underlying reasons why. Why once again we're we're sort of sitting here the, the day after we've gone out of a, a major tournament and and. and picking over what was a, a very disappointing performance. The fact we haven't beaten a major nation in, in tournament football apart from a weak Spain side in 1996 since um, that great day in 1966 uh, speaks for itself really and I think we have to look at the system, we have to look at, at why we got here and that inevitably involves looking abroad, looking at Germany, looking at the system there, looking at France who didn't so, do so well this time around but had, did after all have two uh, major wins in, in recent memory and have got a 
of lauded um, coaching um, youth system and, and means of bringing coaches and players through the ranks. And to Spain, who, who again, as we've seen in recent years, have got a, a young, vibrant side. Um, the figures are pretty damning in terms of the numbers of fully qualified UEFA coaches in England compared to those countries. And um, I think increasingly people are starting to question whether or not the, the balance of power is out of kilter between the very top of the professional game, the Premier League, which, which runs the Premier League in the interests of those 20 clubs very successfully but um, obviously by, by nature of its role isn't required to to look after the interests of the wider game. There's still a real sort of dysfunction at the heart of English football which is going to need to be corrected I think if we're ever going to succeed at a major tournament again. Okay, enough of that. We'll have more in 2012 for the European Championships. Elsewhere on the Guardian website, the former Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega goes on trial in Paris, accused of laundering drug money. Details at guardian.co.uk slash world. Peers in the Lords are facing a 15% cut in allowances to just £300 a day. See how well that goes down at guardian.co.uk slash politics. And keep up to date with Andy Murray at Wimbledon 2010. That's at guardian.co.uk slash sport. In other news, the Tory-led coalition government says it's cutting the number of skilled immigrants who are allowed to work in the UK. Home Secretary Theresa May has set a temporary limit on non-EU members to just over 24,000. That's down around 5%. This is a temporary measure while the government works out what it thinks is the right level for a permanent cap – as our Home Affairs editor, Alan Travis, explains. The cap on immigration, I think, is uh, the story of it is uh, a classic piece of early coalition fudge, we could say. Uh, the Tories, as you remember, went through the election campaign promising to limit immigration. I think when we start looking at the detail of the consultation paper, we start finding that the limit isn't quite a limit. It uh, only seems to, it seems to be a sort of good half of the people who are covered by skilled migrants coming into Britain from outside Europe are actually exempted from uh, this cap. Is immigration from non-EU countries a problem then? The problem for the government has is that it's promised to get immigration down, net immigration, that's those who leave the country as well as those coming into the country, down from hundreds of thousands to uh, tens of thousands. And that seems like quite a big ask. When you start looking through the detail of it, first of all, uh, they can't stop where the people where the bulk of immigration to Britain comes from, which is from other EU countries. If they want to stop that, then they have to start renegotiating the Treaty of Rome, and they're not in that game. Uh, they'd also, the next biggest flow is of people who come here as husbands and wives of British citizens, family reunion. They said again this morning that they weren't going to touch that. So uh, there's only a limited uh, number of levers they've got left. There's skilled migration from outside the European Union. They've already closed, the previous government already closed down unskilled migration. Uh, and there's a question of overseas students. And today's announcement concerns what limit they're putting on skilled migrants from outside the EU. 
And the numbers that we see that are coming in were 24, just over 24,000. This cap is going to reduce that figure by 5%. It's not even that much, is it? Well, a temporary one, no. It's, I admit it's a minor reduction. What's really brought the numbers down, though, is uh, the recession, is that uh, polls are going home, that uh, the number of uh, skilled migrants who want to come to Britain has fallen sharply in the last two years. You say the numbers are around about 24,000. Well, two years ago, they were at 60,000, and already the numbers have come down. So it's not going to be difficult, uh, that difficult for the government to get the numbers down to below 100,000 perhaps. The recession is doing that next year. Germany will open its borders to Polish workers fully. They'll be able to go and work there, to be able to get on the train, uh, be like commuting for them. And that will contribute to even a further reduction in numbers. The question is, what is put into place now that when the recovery comes, whether it will actually uh, bite into stopping the inflow of skilled migrants at that point. But that's two or three years down the line. If the numbers, as you say, are going down so dramatically, this 5% cut, it's meaningless, isn't it? I think it's, well, it's negligible. It's a very modest question. But uh, it's caused uproar amongst the business community who want to be able to recruit. And London as a global hub that's open for business is vital to Britain's continuous uh, continuation of major financial services sector. And uh, so the government's already made concessions to business in that respect. They've said that intercompany transfers, that's movements by multinational companies, by staff from one part of the world to another, most notably Indian IT companies to this country, uh, will be exempt from this limited cap. And uh, they will consult with business for the next six months whilst they draw up the permanent uh, level. But other skilled migrant sectors have started to hurt as well. Care homes, for example, social care homes. All of their staff are outside of Europe. Uh, Filipinos and so on and the government says well they should be able to find enough EU workers to fill those social care jobs the care home people say they can't find enough uh, European care workers who are willing to work in Britain who speak good enough English and have the skills that they want uh, curry shops curry owners Bangladeshi caterers association are also very angry they want to bring in uh, ch- chefs from uh, Bangladesh to work in the curry houses and uh, they went, actually had a protest march 18 months ago filled Trafalgar Square and they may well do so again if they start to buy it. So there are different ways in which uh, even this modest reduction does cause some cries of anguish. Alan Travis talking about skilled workers from outside the EU, none of whom unfortunately would be eligible for the England football team, though football players are exempt from the cap. Finally today, as you may have heard on Guardian Daily, within the last month, Kyrgyzstan has witnessed its worst ethnic violence in two decades. Just a couple of weeks later, its people went to the polls in a referendum on a new constitution. The interim government is claiming victory, saying it now has a mandate to install a European-style democracy in Central Asia. The country's acting leader, Rosa Ottenbaeva, says the country has a new government and new hope of peace and stability. But some international observers have criticised the timing of the poll and warned that rather than bringing peace, the referendum could, in fact, inflame ethnic tensions. The Guardian's Moscow correspondent Luke Harding, who is just back from Kyrgyzstan, says victory or not, there's a history of ethnic tensions which won't disappear overnight. Kyrgyzstan has taken the very unusual step for Central Asia of transforming from a, from a presidential system into a European-style parliamentary democracy with this uh, referendum. Um, what, what's interesting is that this is very unusual for the region. If you look at all the neighbouring countries, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, they're all run by a bunch of sort of variously autocratic super presidents who all appear to be in the job for life. In theory, this is, this is a rather intriguing step forward, but I think the question is whether, whether this change is for real and whether it amounts to any more than merely legitimizing the kind of current 
group of leaders in Kyrgyzstan um, whom nobody has actually voted for. Well, the obvious question there then is how legitimate is the result of the referendum when international monitors avoided Osh and Jalalabad because they were just too dangerous? These, of course, being the areas where the recent violence was centred. There's been quite a lot of criticism about the timing of the referendum. You have to bear in mind, actually, if we sort of step back, what happened in Osh and Jalalabad. These were the worst riots in Central Asia for two decades. I got back from uh, Osh last week and uh, I was there in the immediate aftermath of these riots, as you say, and, and really what happened there was absolutely appalling. I was sort of trudging through uh, Uzbek areas which had been entirely burned to the ground, not with not a single house left standing, and talking to residents there who were all saying the same gruesome thing, which was that Kyrgyz um, groups with armoured personnel carriers um, and with men in uniforms using automatic weapons basically burst into these Uzbek districts and, and shot Everybody shot people who were unable to flee, followed by, by mobs of Kyrgyz youths um, looting and burning. Now, we know the death toll is, is in the region of about 2,000 people, with 400,000 Uzbeks displaced. Many fled initially to Uzbekistan, but most of those have now trickled home. And it's kind of hard to see how you can have a meaningful referendum um, in, in this context. And the danger, of course, is that Kyrgyzstan is kind of sliding towards something far worse, towards either disintegration or civil war. But it's clear that the overwhelming priority for, for the um, temporary government, which took power in April, was to sort of portray itself as the real government of the country. But whether there can be any kind of meaningful process of reconciliation at the moment remains to be seen. Picking up on a point you made, you say 400,000 Uzbeks have been displaced. Do they have homes to return to? What, what are they getting back to finding? The houses are gone. I mean, they're just, in most cases, they're just a smoldering wreck. You can see kind of charred cherry trees and, and a few pieces of furniture, but essentially it's just bricks and rubble. And the, the, the destruction there really was pogromic. Every Uzbek enterprise in the center of Osh, cafes, restaurants, businesses have been completely burnt down. And I think part of the problem is that the um, interim government in Bishkek, which is in the north of the country, has been extremely weak uh, and various sort of shadowy Kyrgyz nationalist forces have stepped into the vacuum, possibly linked with, with the Kiev, the former president, possibly not. But I think there's a real danger that this ethnic conflict in, in what is a highly multinational area spread between Tajikistan and Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan could spread. So I do think there is a, a genuine danger that if, if, if the West, if, if America and indeed Russia, both of which have bases in the north of the country, I think if they don't try and stabilize this country, then uh, it could sort of move vertiginously um, towards a very dangerous situation indeed. Luke Harding. That's it for today's Guardian Daily. Producing today, Tim Maybe. I'm Mike Durand. Thanks for listening. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.